You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. According to a recent YouGov poll, awareness of sarcoma is incredibly low. Three quarters of us don't know or are not sure what sarcoma is. Even for those who've heard of it, understanding of its symptoms is poor. Bradley Price is from the charity Sarcoma UK. Sarcomas are a group of complex cancers that affect the bone and soft tissue in the body. There are over 100 different subtypes. Sarcomas are rare, but still more common than you might otherwise think. 5,300 people are diagnosed with sarcoma in the UK every year, and that's equivalent to 15 people every day. They're not like traditional cancers that you might think of in that they're not in an organ specifically. They can be anywhere on the body, inside or out, and tend to find themselves in the muscles, bone, tendons, blood vessels and fatty tissues. We're trying to get across to everyone that sarcoma is cancer. We want them to know what it is and how to recognise the signs and symptoms so they can present themselves to their GPs. So what are the symptoms? The symptoms can be vague given that it can be anywhere on the body inside or out but the most common symptoms are a lump which are bigger than five centimetres or a growing. They may or may not be painful or bone pain. What a lot of patients have said is that the pain persists after they stop doing whatever activity it is they're doing particularly when you're laying in bed at night. If you find that your bone pain is persisting then you really should be thinking about going to see your GP. Are there specific age groups that need to be more aware? There are certain age groups which are more likely to get sarcoma. For bone sarcomas, which are one in nine sarcomas, particularly Ewing's and osteosarcoma, it's more common in children and young adults and there is a slight swaying towards it being young boys that get it rather than girls. There will be some gender-specific cancers like gynecological sarcomas of the uterus. Apart from that, it's like most cancers, the older you get, the more likely you are to get a sarcoma. What are the risk factors for sarcoma? We don't really know enough about sarcoma and how it develops to be able to have any specific risk factors. If we can have some more research into this area, I think that we'd be able to find out some more. Sarcoma UK itself has invested £4.3 million into research to understand sarcoma and develop better and kinder treatments. But the bigger groups like government bodies don't necessarily give it as much importance as we do. What we know for certain is that the earlier you're diagnosed, the better the chance that you can have curative treatment. And early diagnosis really is key. And if we are diagnosed, what should the gold standard of treatment be? There are a group of specialist sarcoma centres dotted around the UK and every single patient should be treated or have their care coordinated through one of these specialist sarcoma centres with the very best surgeons, doctors, pathologists, radiologists up to date with the latest research and ideas for sarcoma and gives them the best possible chance of having curative treatment or living for as long as possible. There have been some very interesting studies, particularly out of France, who are really trying to push to have a similar setup as us, that being treated in a specialist centre drastically increases your chance of survival, particularly if you have to have surgery. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Based on ancient Chinese practices, reflexology involves carefully applying pressure to specific areas, mainly in the feet, hands and ears, to treat health complaints elsewhere. The core principle is that these pressure points relate to other specific parts or functions of the body. It's cited as potentially offering relief for a long list of ailments, and its popularity has soared in recent years. 
Though recognition of the benefits of complementary medicines has increased, lack of scientific proof has meant some medics are sceptical. Tracy Smith is from the Association of Reflexologists. How reflexology works is not clearly understood. There has been a recent research study that was carried out in Japan using an MRI scanner, and they found that by pressing certain parts of the foot that we would recognise as representing areas of the body, they did find an area of the brain that lit up that actually represented the area of the body that the reflexologist said it would. So there is a link in the body somewhere. It's not really understood how the link is formed. It could be energy, it could be nervous, it could be various mechanisms. So Tracy, what are you and your fellow reflexology members looking for when you're probing our feet and hands and ears? Trained reflexologists are looking for differences in the touch or look of the areas of the feet or the hands, and they aim to rebalance those areas back to normality. So by that rebalancing, do you mean curing a person's ailments or problems? Reflexology doesn't cure. What reflexology does is probably help you with your perception of your illness. It helps with the stress levels, and it helps you feel better in terms of well-being, which in turn can make your illness seem an awful lot better. It depends on the individual, of course, but we certainly would never claim that reflexology can cure. What should we be looking for in a good reflexologist? A good reflexologist needs to have a sound background of training. They need to have learned anatomy and physiology they need to learn how to provide reflexology and of course they need an awareness of the codes of practice and ethics and insured this is word on health with paul penningson research shows that the bed partners of the estimated 20 million snorers in the uk lose on average two hours of sleep every night and the long-term impact is a situation all too familiar to marianne davy from the british snoring and sleep apnea association if we only have one night of disturbed sleep we know ourselves how dreadfully we function the next day we're tired we're irritable which makes us more prone to arguing so if you think about the bed partner of a snorer who's perhaps has this every night of the week for months maybe even years we can imagine how dreadfully ill they feel because of this sleep deprivation snoring can affect people of all ages although it's more common in adults aged 40 to 60 with twice as many men than women who snore we're encouraged to see our gp if a child snores or if an adult snoring is affecting aspects of life such as causing excessive tiredness and poor concentration or relationship problems snoring can sometimes indicate a more serious related condition called sleep apnea. Marianne, many people, especially men, choose not to bother their GP about snoring. You offer an interactive snoring test. How does that work? When you know the cause of the snoring, the resolutions are very easy. They target the mouth, nose and throat area, which will hopefully determine where that snoring is coming from. And of course, the airway is slightly different when you're asleep to when you're awake. What you do then is you let the website direct you to the suitable treatment. For example, if you've decided that you're a mouth breather and you need something to keep your mouth closed at night, then the website will direct you to the treatments that we recommend for that type of snoring. How do we know if these treatments are going to be able to help? Well, the treatments that we offer are clinically proven and you have to make sure that the sort of treatment that you're looking for is going to work for you. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. The development and demand for digital therapeutic applications that we can download onto our phones or tablets continues to rise, with over 375,000 health apps receiving 5 million downloads daily. 
Evidence shows that of those that have been independently tested, less than 20% reached the benchmark set for apps recommended by NHS professionals. The organisation that tests apps for the NHS is Orca. They proclaim to be the world's leading health app evaluation and distribution company. Their managing director is clinical psychologist Dr Lloyd Humphreys. Firstly, we assess the quality of that. Those assessment criteria can end up being approximately 500 different items in terms of data and privacy. Secondly, professional assurance, so the effectiveness, whether the evidence that they are suggesting is actually accurate. And then lastly, usability and accessibility. And then we can provide a single source of information through our digital health libraries. And we do that for about 60% of the National Health Service. Lloyd, I mentioned in my introduction, your background is clinical psychology. How helpful can health apps be in managing our mental health? Digital therapeutics, and particularly in mental health, can be exceptionally helpful. So when we look at certain NHS mental health pathways designed to help people with mild to moderate mental health, we know that digital therapy is one of the mainstays of treatment and intervention to the point where during some months of the pandemic, 30% of all treatment delivery for adults was delivered using digital therapeutics. And the recovery rates can be well above 50%. So they are exceptionally effective. Now, they're not a replacement for all types of face-to-face therapy, but they are definitely something that is in the toolkit that should be offered to people as a variety of choices to help them overcome mental health challenges. It's claimed that when it comes to mental health apps, it's a wild west out there, with very few of the twenty to 30,000 mental health apps available for download, independently verified or tested. Those services that are available via the NHS They have been tested. Where we do need to worry is about those that are offered outside of the regulations and the compliance structure of the NHS. Lloyd, with many teenagers having more of a relationship with their smartphones than people around them, health apps are cited as having enormous potential to help young people's mental well-being. But for many parents, there's a concern that the overuse of smartphones and tablets contributes to poor mental health. We need to meet children where they are at, and this is just one route to meet people. And so it's not a replacement for going to speak to someone, but it is about providing that choice. We do have a significant relationship with our device. That doesn't mean that we should ignore that relationship because it's ability to reach a young person where they are. However, obviously, we do need to be aware of screen time, um, that relationship, and making sure that it is a healthy relationship with the device. I know as part of your suitability checks, Orca recently recruited a small task force of teenagers to work alongside your experts to assess a range of health apps aimed at young minds. I caught up with 16-year-old Oliver Rawlinson-John from the Clear Mind Project earlier. I'm planning on going to med school, so I jumped at the idea of being able to help other people in this way. We use the Orca app library because we know that they've been vetted and gone through the whole in-depth review process and then we downloaded them ourselves and tested them out for a couple of days. It was interesting. Some of them definitely weren't best for teenagers, but I think obviously not many teenagers are actually developing the apps and being involved in that process. Our main focus was how accessible they were. So obviously teenagers aren't going to have a very good income, so we wanted them all to be low cost and easy to use. 
So most of the ones we picked were kind of had a social media like layout and allowed you to speak to other people rather than just like different exercises and things. Oliver, what will you take away from being involved with this project? I would be shocked if a teenager told me that they didn't know someone who had been through serious mental health issues. I think mental health should be part of the base standard curriculum, especially with how much of a big issue it is these days. I just think it needs to be normalised more. There's still a bit of a stigma around it, and it just needs to be something that you can speak about as much as your physical health, like as easy to speak about as if you get a cold, for example. I think that's why digital health has so many advantages, because if you didn't feel comfortable going to speak to someone else about it, which unfortunately a lot of people don't because of the stigma around it, you're not actually speaking to another person and it's almost anonymous because you're just on your phone, which a lot of teenagers do all the time. My grateful thanks to Dr Lloyd Humphreys and Oliver Rawlinson-John. As ever, we carry support information and links to featured organisations on our website. The address being www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordonhealth.com, where you can also find out about our fundraising campaign to keep Word on Health a free, editorially independent, health awareness radio series and editorial platform for healthcare charities and community broadcasters. We very much hope that you can support us. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.